This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Stephen Garber, who is principal – that's actually a very British kind of title um, – at the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture in Washington, D.C. And uh, Stephen has given his life to what I would consider to be a very important theme, and that is um, how life as a whole matters, uh, not just uh, when we're in church, but uh, how the entirety of our life matters, how vocation, faith, and culture uh, fit together. So Stephen, why don't you tell us um, where your interest came from and uh, why faith, vocation, and culture are such important related concepts for you. Thank you, Daryl, and it's wonderful to be with you and Dallas Theological Seminary today. Um, my father was a research scientist for the University of California, and the many stories could be told about why I think about these things. <clears throat> I think it's, it's a good true story that watching him for many years, assuming I would be like him with my life, because boys did that, didn't they? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I didn't really like high school biology that much, mm. which was a surprise to me. Well, you got two of us in the room who are in the same place. <laughs> and my father, of course, you know, helped me to understand that you'd have to really like biology a lot to be a plant pathologist you know, in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so it was my first question about my vocation was as a 14, 15-year-old. But in the years of in those years, those adolescent years, as I was watching him, beginning to be more attentive to who my father was in the world, he and I had a conversation one night uh, after supper. We were just we were, I was one of four boys. We were just talking together in the living room, and he said he wasn't going back to the laboratory that night to do more research. And I, in one sense, wasn't even aware that he'd done that ever, probably. But he was explaining why he wasn't, hmm. and it wasn't a it wasn't a critical comment about anybody else. His colleagues, people who I had grown up with, I knew them. I knew that he liked them and respected them. But he said, "Steve, my sense of my life is that there are more things I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a father of four sons, as I'm your mother's husband. I am a, you know, I take part in a Bible study at the prison on Thursday nights, as you know. He says I'm a on the school board here in town. I'm a an elder in our church." Um, but he said, I want you to know that when I go into the laboratory in the morning, I pray for God to give me insight into what I do, to have the questions which shape my research be ones which grow out of the very mind of God, that I would seek connections between things, and I'd be able to understand what I'm doing and what it means for the wider world. I took that to my heart. I remember the conversation of all things I don't remember about my adolescent years. Hmm. Um, but I began to, you know, think through as I grew out of those years into my own adult years and beyond of just thinking, you know, what is it actually to to pray to see all of life seamlessly, mm -hmm. to see it all held together, for there to be a coherence across the whole of one's life. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
So I think, you know, it's, it, is, it is a true story to reflect upon my father in this, to say, you know, I, I looked over his shoulder through his heart, in a sense, at, you know, what a person's vocation looks like in the world and why it is, why uh, a compartmentalizing account of life, uh, a separating of sacred from secular, mm-hmm. um, this doesn't really do justice to who God is and who he wants us to be. So. so, so then, what do you uh, what what things do you concentrate on at the Institute of Faith, Vocation, and Culture? How, how what do you? Some people would go, "What in the world is that?" Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> it's a really good question. I'm trying to answer it for myself day by day. Actually, um, well, I would say that in everything we do, every way can we can imagine, we are pressing for this integral relationship between faith and vocation and culture. And the thesis is pretty simple in some ways, though it's far-reaching and complex in other ways. And that is that faith shapes vocation, which shapes culture mm-hmm. for everyone everywhere. So whether you're a Muslim, whether you're an evolutionary materialist, a Hindu, or whether you're an honestly committed Christian person, that what you believe about life shapes how you live your life, and that has consequence for life for all of us, for blessing or for curse. Uh, so we are pressing that in courses we teach, in lectures, in things we write, people we meet with, you know, in the weeks in, of life, the weeks of a month, the months of a year. It's always pressing that thesis out and trying to help people to understand with more clarity, with more more uh, integrity, you know, how a more coherent life is a possibility. So uh, let, let's talk about a wor- word like vocation, which is obviously a very important word for for what you do. And most people will say, oh, vocation that's just my job Um, and part of what you have said and and I I have of course your book here visions of vocation common grace for the common good and you know part of the point of this book is is the vocation is actually a deep word it there's much more to it than just thinking about job Mm -hmm. so so here's your chance. Okay. <laughs> uh, explain to us um, why vocation is more than just the job. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best of all questions, Daryl Bach. <laughs> so, um, so I would typically say it's a complex word, it's a big word, it's a rich word, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't mean we should be scared of it, mm-hmm. but in some ways we, it gives us room to live, mm-hmm. which for me is always the deeper issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, does what you believe actually give you room to live your life? Mm-hmm. You know, or does it in some ways require you to stumble because it just isn't big enough? It isn't true enough to the way the world actually is. Hmm. Those are ways I think about this. So for me, the word vocation is a gift from God to us, actually. Um, you know, not surprisingly, the word has a history. You know, it comes from a Latin root, you know, which is like vocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have vocal cords. Because why? Well, because that helps us to speak. So vocare is a word for the call. A call. Uh, um, so who's calling? Is there a caller? That's really the first of all the questions about vocation. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there somebody giving a call? Is there a caller giving a call? So clearly, you know, on the deeper side of the story, you know, this is a conversation about God himself calling us to see the world as he sees the world, to hear the world as he hears the world, to feel the world as he feels the world, to care about the things that he cares about, to love the things that he loves. So that's really the, the deepest sense of vocation or calling is to see and to hear and to feel as God does. So there's a directedness to vocation in which the sense is, I'm here where I am because God has me here. At least that's a dimension of it. And that enhances the idea of, well, I chose my job, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just, right. uh, or I, I, I do my job in order to earn a living or something like that. No, there's a, there is a, 
uh, I'm going to coin a word here, a placidness mm-hmm. uh, to yes. what we do that God and God's responsible for placing me there. So then the question is, how do I live and carry out yeah. my life in that space? Mm-hmm. So when I think about this, and I'm, I'm thinking about this in the light, of course, of 2,000 years of church history mm-hmm. you know, on this question, and the church for 2,000 years has got this right sometimes better than others and sometimes missed pretty badly, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but since the Reformation, you know, we have a tradition within the, the, the church which says, well, there is a, a more general sense of vocation or calling, which are actually the very same words, Latin and Greek roots, mm-hmm. vocation and calling, a more general sense, and there's a more specific sense, too. So we can speak about this general sense of responding to the call of God upon my life. Mm-hmm. All of us can. To know God, to be known by God, to love what God loves. But a more particular, specific sense, of course, is also legitimate. And we use this about the vocation of cowboy, mm-hmm. the vocation of law, the vocation of journalism, the vocation of medicine, the vocation of, of mothering, the vocation of whatever it's going to be, really. Um, so for me, when I'm talking to people about this, which is what I do much of my life, obviously, um, you know, who are coming with, in some ways, questions about who am I and what do I do with my life, mm-hmm. uh, which I would say are really the questions at the heart of what vocation means, mm-hmm. the complex, big, rich word that it is. Um, it has to address all of life. It has to address, as my father helped me to see in my own younger way, you know, that his vocation actually was multifaceted. It had many different faces to it. Uh, at the heart of it was trying to love God and to love the things God loves. But it had a fatherly dimension to it. It had a husbandly. It had a, a professional, you know, scientist dimension to it. It had a community involvement with a prison and a church involvement. Just being with a it. good neighbor. It was a good being and a good neighbor. Really. Yeah. Which of course is, you know, to put it in other biblical, you know, terms, it is to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Really. Mm-hmm. And those are not un- unrelated to the questions about what vocation means. Right. When I think about the word vocation, and I'm often sitting at a Starbucks kind of a place talking to somebody who's a 22 year old or a 62 year old or whoever they are, who's struggling with wanting something to think through. I'll often put on that little brown napkin two circles. One has a a V in it, one has an O in it. And they overlap each other, but they're not the same circle. Hmm. And one is the vocation circle, one is the occupation circle. And so when I speak about vocation, I'm talking about the longer, deeper story that makes Daryl Bach Daryl Bach. You know, and you're not your wife, and you're not your brother, and you're not your father, you know, and you're not anybody else, actually. You are uniquely you, and it comes out of all the experiences and the giftedness and the graces and the way you've seen what you've done over the course of 60 years of your life, and and that's you uniquely in the whole world, really. Occupationally, you at particular points along the way, you take up you occupy different relationships and responsibilities that become sort of these for these years of my life. I've done this, you know, mm-hmm. and I've done this, and I'm not changing who I am. I'm taking on some things which I didn't used to take on. These are now who become what I do with my life more of the time, really. Um, so for me, you know, it's a sort of it, it is a longer discussion with somebody, but it is in some ways wanting to help them to see this general, deeper sense of vocation for all of us, the more particular vocation of, you know, being a, a rancher, being a, a businessman, being a, a, a teacher, uh, and then of course a person who's a, you know, who is a. A teacher, well, a person could teach in a grammar school for five or six years and mm-hmm. then go on to get a master's degree and then a PhD, and then all of a sudden you find yourself 20 years later teaching in a seminary of all things, really. You know, you're still the same person with the same calling to teach, but the occupational setting has changed over time. So for me, it's always the question can you find a deepening coherence 
uh, about your with your vocation as your occupation unfolds over the course of life. So I'm I'm curious. I'm a visual person. So this, when you do these circles, is the V the bigger circle and the O the I smaller mean, one, or is, is the it, other way around? It's not a Mount Sinai illustration. Here. Okay, okay. You know, so it's not like God gave this to me, but okay. my own wrestling with it. it says I just put the circles as the same size, uh-huh. but they overlap each other a little bit. I see. Um, and I kind of scribble a little line between them and say, in the now but not yet of this world, mm-hmm. you know, they're never the same circle right. for any of us, actually. Right. Sometimes by God's grace to us, there's more overlap than other times. Sometimes because of systemic injustices and wrongs in the world and you know, hurts and wounds in one's life, mm-hmm. there's hardly any relationship between what I end up doing mm-hmm. day by day with what I really wish I longed to do mm-hmm. with my life, really. But that those always relate, relate to each other in some honest way. So. So they uh, so they overlap and, and and touch, but they don't. But they aren't. They aren't one the doesn't encompass the other because they because because the story that we live in as Christian people is the now but not yet of right. Christ making all things be new, and yet even the creation still groans, mm-hmm. and we do too. Well, uh, so this is this is vocation. Now, I, I, I'm I'm not going to go to culture because once mm-hmm. we start, we won't finish. Okay. Um, but what I am going to do is talk about the subtitle on this book, which is "Common Grace for the Common Good." Now, two very important concepts: mm-hmm. common grace and common good. Um, and I actually think more people uh, – I think I'm right about this – more people probably get the idea of common grace and resonate with it than they do with the idea of common good. I think yeah. common good is a difficult concept for a lot of people. But let's take them in the order in which I said okay. them. Common grace. Let's talk about that first, and then let's talk about common okay. good. So just to put the title you know, on one you know, one page here with uh-huh. Daryl, I mean, the argument of the book is that it's in and through our vocations that we are to take up this work of common grace for the common good, that they are common grace for the common good, the vocations God gives to us. That's the thesis of the book. And, and I am assuming that the assumption here is, is that what happens with our vocation is God puts us in a world, he puts us in a fallen world, we're rubbing shoulders with with uh, others like ourselves who ha- who have needs and hurts, et cetera, and we're, we're – we're uh, oftentimes wrestling with how to do that well. Yes, right. Um, so the best theologians, and you're probably included in this list, Daryl Bach, but um, make a distinction between common grace and saving grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have to think these kind of things through with some attentiveness and intention, actually. Otherwise, we just get blown away by the world and the flesh and the devil on all this stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so saving grace is God's work. You know, in some ways, it's easy to say that, mm-hmm. even though it's complex and astounding and, you know, beyond our understanding. But it is God's work in the world. God saves. We don't save. Mm-hmm. That is sort of simply the confession of Christian, true Christian people. God is the Savior. We don't save. Um, uh, We're vessels. Common grace mm-hmm. is ordinary grace, to use another word, which is the same word here. Mm-hmm. It's the ordinary gift of God to the world. Um, so our work is not to save. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes in strange mercies to you know, the world, we get involved in more direct you know, ways with God's work of salvation. We think, I watched this. I was a part of this, really. Mm-hmm. But most of life isn't like that, really, for most of us, really. Um, uh, 
the, the, one of the verses in the Bible, which I, we could talk about the whole story from beginning to end here, from creation to consummation, but one of the verses I most am glad is in the Bible is in the prophet Zechariah's uh, uh, word, and it's the last chapter, and it's the promise in the midst of all that's not right in the world and all the groaning and suffering of the world, but the promise that when the day of the Lord comes, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, you know, you've traveled and I've traveled and you've probably been in little villages in western Kenya and you've seen that, you know, they don't have any access to high-end, you know, cooking supply stores and, Mm -hmm. you know, in Highland Park, you know, of Dallas or something. I mean, they can buy a $500 fire engine red cooking pot. They're taking the clay around their village and they're firing it and putting it together and over generations and centuries they've learned how to actually keep the clay together and actually be able to put water in it and put a chicken in it and put vegetables in it and that's the supper day by day by day by day really you know every house in the whole world has a cooking pot you know the you know the most meager to the most you know mighty in some ways Um, i love the fact actually that it's the very ordinary thing you know, it's maybe the most ordinary of all kitchen utensils we have, a cooking pot, really. Um, so common grace, you know, it is that we, that that most of life, whether it's the kisses of my, my good wife, mm-hmm. which, you know, I love and adore and keep, they sustain my life in the world that she loves me, really. But they don't save me from my sin. Mm-hmm. But if the only alternative we have is that, you know, if, they, if they're not sacred in that sense, they must be secular. If that's the paradigm... You know, then my wife's kisses are secular kisses, sad to say, really, because, of course, they're not saving kisses. They're not sacred kisses like that, really. So if the paradigm we have is, well, all of life is either this or it's that. It's things God loves and things he doesn't love as much, you see, really. If that's how we think about life. It's spectacular it's, or not much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, then my wife's, of course, gifts love to me. Mm-hmm. It's sort of not much, really. Mm-hmm. It's sort of sadly kind of secular, by the way, really. Mm-hmm. You know, but you see, if all of life is to be holy to the Lord, all of life to be holy to the Lord, well, then we have to have eyes to see. That really is what the eyes to see language is. It's not that it's not holy. It's we don't see it as sacramental in that sense or holy to the Lord in that sense. So by com- common grace, you really – I'm going to use uh-huh. – take advantage of our sound here, our audio. But you mean common grace. It's appreciating the fact that everything is a grace and a gift and special and from God and for our – presence and enjoyment, that kind of thing, that, that, that life is designed to be lived that way out of an appreciation for all it is that God does us. Even the very common things that we go through in life are, are special because of the, they are evidence of His provision for us in life. If we have eyes to see, that's, that's the point, really. And mm-hmm. so a good law, a good road, you know, a beautiful sunset, you know, a good cup of tea in the morning, you know, um, a good friend, I mean, these don't save us from our sin. You know, but they're not nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually are gifts of God to us to keep us in this world. And they enrich life by giving us a deeper appreciation for all that we are experiencing as God takes us through um, His creation and as we as creatures function in the world that He's not only given us to function in, but to some degree given us a responsibility uh, to manage in one way or another. You know, Genesis 1 talks about uh, putting people on the earth in order that they might exercise dominion over the creation, and that's that's really about management. Uh, it is, it, really. Management's kind of a dull word for a lot of people, but it's actually a pretty important theological word. 
And it's a pretty important word for all of us if we have eyes to see. That's how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. I lunch yesterday with a guy at the 43, the restaurant in the George Bush you know, library over at SMU's campus. He's a, a businessman here in Dallas. I've known him for some years. And, and he manages a lot of complexity in this life, actually. Uh, you know, he has been managing money in Dallas and across America and around the world for quite a few years with levels of understanding and complexity that most of us can't even get close to understand. What did you do and how did you, how'd you make so much money doing that, really? I knew that even existed, really. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, to put one little face on it, part of our conversation yesterday was about a, a new business that he's been forming the last few years that funds the buying of large on, semi-trucks. Hmm. Uh, so you may not, we may not think, actually, that had much to do with what God cares about in the world, funding semi-trucks. But you think, if you sort of begin thinking, thinking through a bureaucratic, you know, modern society, where how do we get, when we say, one-click Amazon, it'll be here, you know, mm-hmm. one day, two day, we think, well, how does this happen? Not by magic, really. We see somebody behind the scenes, actually, like my friend, you know, had this idea, in fact, that, you know, there were people who wanted to have a little trucking company and, you know, Podunk, Georgia, you know, who called, who said, well, I can't get funding from the bank for this because of this, but, you know, here's a venue which who, who, a business that allowed me to get the funding to do this, and I can buy my 10 trucks, and or I can buy my 100 trucks, or I can do this, I can do that, really, you know. And in some ways, he's creating infrastructure mm-hmm. that makes life possible for all of us. We don't think about it much at all. Well, you see, again, if the only categories we have are, you know, it's either sacred work or secular work. Then you know we end up having a you know a split life, a dualistic life, a life where you know part of it really is sort of for God and His things, part of it's just for you know the devil and His things. I guess maybe really. But if we're going to have a life where everything is holy to the Lord, we have to have a theological vision which can account for that. Which is where I think common grace is a gift to us. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So you were talking to us about the uh, about this man who deals with with semis. You know the illustration that I like to use when talking about this. Think about what it takes for you to have a bowl of cereal in the morning, mm-hmm. and all the different jobs, all the different vocations that mm-hmm. go into making you be able to you know take your box of Wheaties. I hope they appreciate the advertisement. <laughs> uh, pour the milk in uh, with the sugar and, and I always have sugar with my Wheaties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and think about you know the from the farmer to even the grocery store to even the the guy a job I my first job was was um, in a grocery store you know uh, taking care of the shelves and what went on the shelves that kind of thing. Um, 
to the person who builds the wrap that goes around the Wheaties, the person who builds the box, all the transportation of getting those things from one place. There's a lot that happens just so you can have your bowl of Wheaties in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think about um, – I do think there's an element of a deeper appreciation for what goes into life. Uh, and how we are able to live the way we live by appreciating the array of vocations, some of them very, very common, mm-hmm. uh, that allow us to live the way that we do. And that it, it adds an element of appreciation to life to, to sometimes contemplate what goes into the very simple things that we do every day. So even again, back to my friend yesterday, mm-hmm. um, who one business he has, you know, which is pretty involved and pretty intricate and pretty complex and you know pretty big. Uh, is he's created a a financial company which funds the buying of semi trucks. Mm-hmm. We don't get Wheaties on the table or sugar on the table or even milk on the table mm-hmm. without having a truck having per- brought it somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, and the trucks didn't fall out of heaven. Mm-hmm. They didn't just plop out of you know the night sky. Really, I mean, somebody actually had an idea, had a hope, had the in- industry, you know, and the persistence to work at this, to bring it into being, to actually be the person who won the contract, you know, to get the supplier to meet the demand, you know, and it's just like that day by day. I had lunch two days ago with a guy from the Mars Corporation, which makes M&Ms of all things. Mm-hmm. I do some work, strangely, for the Mars Corporation. I'm mm-hmm. a, a fellow for the Catalyst Group, which is the, the think tank for the Mars Corporation. Um, and they make lots of things, actually. They make Skittles down here in Waco, Texas. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, one of their, you know, places in the world where they make stuff, really. Um, but they make device cream bars. They make most of the pet food we buy in the world, and they make lots of things, actually. Well, I mean, M&M's is an interesting question about, you know, mm-hmm. common good mm-hmm. you know, on this. I mean, well, I make, that's, that's I make, very good. <laughs> I make never, no, no argument you know, uh-huh. that we should all only eat M&M's in this life. Right. That wouldn't be good for any of us, right. actually. But I've found that when I talk about this idea of vocations in the marketplaces of the world and begin talking about the Mars Corporation, this project I'm working on with them, everybody in the room smiles, mm-hmm. interestingly. Mm-hmm. It's be- not because they want 100 M&Ms that moment. They would take two or three maybe mm-hmm. or five and think, well, that's pretty good. Thank I'm you so much. I'm probably good for really. 20. <laughs> or 20. Even, you know? And there's something strange really about this phenomenon mm-hmm. of a little bit of a ch- chocolate, you know, mm-hmm. red and green and yellow and mm-hmm. everything else painted. You know, We think, I could do that. That'd be a gift to me mm-hmm. right now in my life at mm-hmm. three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I'd like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, really. Um, so when I think about common good, Daryl, I mean, again, there's places to go to root this, but one of the places I most love in the biblical story is in the prophet Jeremiah, who is speaking to the exiled people in Babylon, the Daniel, the Meshach, the Shadrach, the Abednegoes, and thousands more, really. And he's saying to them, you know, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's given this word for the exiled people, seek the flourishing of the city, Mm -hmm. pray for the city to flourish, Mm -hmm. plant trees, build houses, get married, have kids, and when the city flourishes, you will flourish. So pray for the city to flourish. It'd be easier in some ways to imagine, you know, praying for I'll you know be a little pejorative here mm-hmm. for Colorado Springs than for Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking, well, I'm not pray for Washington. There's too much bad happens in Washington. Mm-hmm. Actually, but this is the most iconic bad city in the world, Babylon. Mm-hmm. 
It's the worst of the And it's our enemies. I mean, they're our enemies. <laughs> you know, and the, but the word of Jeremiah given by God to the exile people is to pray for Babylon, for it to flourish, to seek its flourishing. There's a whole lot of common good in that, you know, calling that God gives to the exiled people to seek actually the, the welfare, another way to talk about it, the flourishing, the welfare mm-hmm. of Bab- Babylon. Um, I think, again, you know, apart from pastors, pre- you know, who, who help their people through their preaching and praying to understand actually why a vision for common good is important to God's people in the world. You know, if it's Jeremiah's prophecy in the Old Testament, it clearly is, you know, Jesus summing it all up and saying, you know, what's it all mean? What's all this about? Well, love your neighbor as you love yourself, really. You know, and there's an awful lot of common good, you know, in that too, of realizing, in fact, that you know, that's not just privatized piety, that it is, has personal meaning for all of us, but it actually has to be worked out in the whole of life to love my neighbor as I love myself. And we can connect it, I think, with honest integrity to that language of Jeremiah to the people of, 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 who are exiled to Babylon, um, to seek the flourishing of your city, to care about your neighbors as you care about yourself, to love them as you love yourself, really. And to work this out, and as Daniel did, not as sort of a religious advisor to Jewish people, he was the chief political counselor to three tyrants, three kind of bad men, actually, you know, mercurial despots they were, mm-hmm. you know. But he was the most trusted political counselor to three different regimes over the course of his life. Iraqi, Iranian regimes, they turned out to be years mm-hmm. later, really. Um, but what did he do? Well, the best we can account for that is that he weighed in on military strength, on agricultural resources, on building highways, on the economy. That's what political counselors always do, really. That was Daniel's work, the best we understand it, really. Um, and so to see ourselves that it's in and through what we're given to do in the world that we are to seek the flourishing of the city, which is why for me this language of common grace for the common good means so much. Well, I, 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 I almost would love to develop this and start and talk, you know, but those trucks can't even go anywhere unless they're on highways. Uh, the guys who I often pass by without giving a thought, the guys who are pouring the asphalt, preparing the concrete, et cetera, I think, um, you know, oftentimes I'm thinking about, you know, why is this construction going on? It's just getting in the way. But actually, it's, it's accomplishing something pretty positive mm-hmm. that enables us to manage our world and to function. And, and, and again, I think part of the issue, there are two things that are highlighted, I think, in what you're saying. One is, one is the value of what's getting done here. Um, and the second is having an appreciation for the very simple things of life that actually make life workable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not thinking about it just in an efficiency standpoint, but it, but it actually, when when life is done and managed well, when vocation is carried out well, it allows people to relate to one another better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a form, an expression of love and care. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to transition now because if we keep talking about common grace, which we could do the rest of the show, mm-hmm. we won't talk about common good. Mm-hmm. And common good is, I think, a harder concept. And and um, I remember I, I, I write for a blog here in Dallas, the Dallas Morning News. I've been on it since the very beginning. And I remember a public event in which we started discussing the common good, and the question came up. How can you talk about the common good when people can't agree on what the good is and they don't sometimes share very much seemingly in common? Right. Yeah. It's a difficult question. So I think the common good is a harder concept in some ways than common grace. Mm-hmm. And yet 
it's extremely important concept. <clears throat> so when you talk about common good, what what are you what are you uh, aspiring people to grasp? Mm-hmm. In some ways, Daryl, you know, my first response is just to place myself in the in the tensions of Paul in Romans five, six, seven, and eight. You know, and just realizing that there's a tension built into the way we have to think about this mm-hmm. as God's people in the world. You know, um, there's a tension in it, in mm-hmm. it, um, because you know, I agree with you know the person who wrote back to you and said, "Well, not much in common, and what's good anyway?" Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, in a pluralizing, secularizing, globalizing world, that's more and more difficult. And given what I know about your life, this week has been true. That's been true for you in spades, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to work out this out in an increasingly pluralizing, increasingly secularizing, increasingly globalizing world. I'm not romantic about that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel weighed down by that considerably. Actually, it it burdens me considerably. It's life in a fallen world. It is, in, but it, it is in our faces more and more so. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we move f- more and more, you know, into a a, a, a moment in history where there's less and less and less moorings or tethering to a Christian consciousness, Mm -hmm. Um, that becomes more and more of a challenge to us, I I would say, Uh, um, which doesn't mean that we should step back away from. One of my great teachers was John Stott, the the Protestant pope of the last half of the 20th century. (laughs) Um, But he said this in his commentaries and his teaching about the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And Uncle John put it like this. He said, why would you blame a room for being dark? Why wouldn't you ask why wasn't the light turned on? He said, why would you blame meat for rotting? Why wouldn't you ask why wasn't this meat salted, really? Uh, we have a hard time imagining that second metaphor mm-hmm. in a plastic-wrapped, you know, buying in Safeway. Protected you know, world, you know, yeah. World. But I mean, most of the world, because it's the majority world doesn't buy meat that way. They mm-hmm. buy it off a stand by the side of the road, and you cut off a slab and hope the flies aren't too much on it that day, really. It wasn't there last week. It, you know, it's more recent than not. And most of the world still buys meat that way, really, you know. But his point was, why would you blame the world for being the world? Why wouldn't you ask, why wasn't the church there? Why didn't Christians get involved? Why didn't we penetrate and permeate the world? Because it's our, not our responsibility, it isn't our place to criticize the world for being the world. The world will be the world. Mm-hmm. Our question is, why didn't we get involved? And I would say that you know, it's those words, that's that truth, it's that imagery which really tethered me in my life for most of my life now. I'd have a hard time living where I live in this city of glorious ruin that Washington, D.C. is. Um, if I didn't have some sense that, you know, you are, Steve, I don't like this because it's too hard many days, you are to be the salt and light of the world. You know, give yourself to this, you know, with one more time, with gladness and singleness of heart, really. Um, I do work, you know, with the people who are behind the HEB grocery stores in Texas, mm-hmm. um, which all of you, you know, in the Republic of Texas, you know, and beyond would maybe would know about, really. but. I've often thought about you know them because they are a family actually that believes the very things that Dallas Seminary believes. Mm-hmm. They're committed to the Apostles' Creed and to the Trinita- Trinitarian faith, and you know, and to being people of justice and mercy in the world, and to working that out in selling milk and bread and bananas, you know, throughout the cities and, and villages of Texas, really. Um, I, but I, I've watched them enough to know that they don't have, they don't suffer from dualism mm-hmm. in their in their best thinking about this. I mean, the Butt family actually is, you know, given generations to trying to think through how do we serve Texas mm-hmm. by offering good food at a good price. 
Uh, I know enough about them to know that they don't see that as secular, mm-hmm. uh, as sort of a secular offering. And then we make enough money off the Texans to do good things, you know, with chari- charitable, you know, offerings at the end of the year. I mean, they are very charitable. They are very generous people, really. But it isn't because they have squeezed every, you know, ounce out of Texans, you know, and you know, sold bad food at bad prices. I mean, why people keep going back? Why at Walmart doesn't compete in Texas with HEB? is because HEB has served Texas so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've actually had a vision of common grace for the common good in and through their supplying of groceries to Texans. And what I'm hearing, that, uh, in, kind of between the lines and what you're saying, is this is not about, uh, or even, maybe even primarily about what we say, but it's how we engage. It's, um, and it doesn't mean to say that there aren't sometimes words there, but it is, it is to say that when we're talking about being salt and light, we're, we're talking about the way in which we have contact and presence with people as opposed to merely talking to or about them. Mm-hmm. Is that a I mean, part of comedy? I mean, words have to become flesh. Mm-hmm. That's not just good theology, Daryl. I mean, mm-hmm. you're a professor, you're That's a teacher. Right. I mean, it's the best pedagogy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't actually, as human beings, we don't get it mm-hmm. apart from seeing that the words can become life, that they can take on flesh. It's just the way we're made. God who made us knows that, which is why incarnation, the incarnation, actually needed to be not only for theological reasons, which are profound and weighty, but actually for pedagogical reasons, which are also profound and weighty. We don't understand things unless we see they can get worked out. So it has to be worked out. It has to be engaged. It has to be actually lived out for us to understand what it means. Yeah, and I, I think that sometimes, and I, I'm immediately drawn to the book of Proverbs, which is applied wisdom, and to know God in, in that book is not to know stuff about him. It's, it's to live in a way in which wisdom is applied in life, is done, if I can say it that yes. way, in such a way that, that, uh, that God, God is honored and I live in, in harmony, if I can say it that way, um, with uh, the fact that God made me in his image to reflect who he is in the world. Mm-hmm. One, of the, you know, one of the arguments I've, or reflections I've had in the book is between the Greek way of seeing the world and the Hebrew way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to be said, and it's, it's a complex story, and I don't want to be cheap about it for a moment, really. But one of the authors I've drawn on, who actually is a University of Dallas professor here uh, in, in the city, um, did a re- remarkable essay years ago contrasting these two worlds and worldviews, the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, and uh, you know, to put it in the most simple terms, I think they're fair. I mean, if, if in the Greek world there was the ideal of justice, the ideal of compassion, the ideal of love, the ideal of wisdom, um, uh, and it isn't as if that was you know, a malicious lie. It was in some ways trying to account for something which they were trying to understand about the world. I get that part of it. But the Hebrew way, of course, is something which is, which is by nature embodied. Uh, it has to be worked out. You know, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's manifest in life. Its word uh, become flesh. Its word become flesh, really. Yeah. So the very Hebrew word yada, you know, which Seinfeld horribly bastardized, excuse mm-hmm. me, you know, mm-hmm. along the way in his show, you know, yada, 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 just yeah. nothing, 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 yeah. really. I mean, what the Hebrew word says is, in fact, when you know, you have to do. And if you don't do, then you really don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a much tougher way to understand knowing. Absolutely, yeah. Really. Um, and so I'm drawn to those sort of deep Hebrew, you know, understandings of what it means to know the world. 
Because you see, if you know the world, you're going to have to care about the world. That's written into the very Hebrew understanding of knowing. Yeah, which means that in church, you know, we have a lot of places that, that oftentimes pride themselves in what they know about the Bible, but it probably sometimes can be a very shallow meaning of the term. Yeah. They may know a lot of stuff about what the Bible is and says, but but if, if they actually aren't applying what's being said, if they aren't putting into practice what's there, um, I think heaven would say, eh, you don't know as much as you think. <laughs> I mean, I, just, I don't work for you and I don't work with you, but I just had noticed coming into the studio this morning on your DTS cups, mm-hmm. teach truth, love well. Exactly. You know? yeah. And you could say it a thousand good ways, but that's yeah. a very good way to say it, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it isn't enough to teach the truth as if somehow that resides in my head, right. in my brain, right. like it's somehow no doctrine. Right. You know? But you see, if it's not as it's worked out in your life, exactly. and you've learned to love well, well, you don't really know. That's the Hebrew vision. And, That's and, the biblical vision. And, and I think the intent behind that saying is to say, look, we're really committed to making sure that the heart and the mind are connected to one another, that they're functioned. There actually is – there's blood flowing from mm-hmm. one to the other, yeah. and, and, and life is happening because the heart and the head are actually in conjunction with one another. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say in all of this is that that there is there is a holism to life. There is there is a placidness to all of life uh, that's designed to function. I think you used the word very early on, seamlessly. Okay. Uh, and in that in that unity, life makes sense. It has value, and it ends up being carried out and lived in the way in which God designed it to be lived, mm-hmm. not in these little compartments where, you know, I'm on for God here and over here I'm doing something else. But no, I'm always on and in His presence. I'm always engaged with what He has me being about, and I'm always in the process of, of, uh, of uh, of a, of a place and a location where God has me uh, serving Him and serving others. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, it's um, uh, it, we're we're kind of coming down to the end here. So I, I I'll ask what I often get what I what I often get asked when I'm interviewed when the when the uh, interviewer gets to the end and 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 we're running short of time and it goes like this. What else would you tell us uh, around what it is, or how would you summarize what it is that we've been talking about? Well, can I just say something to that question in relation to this being a seminary? Yes. Um, Fifteen years ago, the Lilly Endowment created a very large grant. They called it Programs in the Theological Exploration of Vocation. And they gave $2 million grants to 90 institutions of higher learning across America. Baylor got $2 million, but so did Notre Dame. And 90 schools like them across America got $2 million. I was drawn into the grant along the way by the, by the foundation saying, you know, we see your name on how this money is used. you have any ideas about it? I said, I've got one idea probably. And that is because you've chosen schools with ecclesial histories, Baptist, Baylor, mm-hmm. Catholic, Notre Dame, and, and on and on and on really. Because Lily is Lily, they do have cared about the health of the church in America. And I said, I don't see how the, the, the fruit and the hope of the grant could be sustained unless you actually involve congregations in this somehow. Hmm. Um, so a Bader graduate you know, leaves Waco and moves to Dallas, and he can't find a church that preaches or praises if vocation matters to God in the world. You get to be 30 years old, and you're going to think, you know, I had a lot of bull, conver- bull session conversations when I was 21. This vocation one was sure one like that because neither the world nor the church thinks this way. You know? And Lily said, but then we think you're right about that. Um, so I've spent years of my life 
thinking about theological education in the relation to vocation and why it's critical, why it matters so much for the church to reorder its thinking about what vocation means. Because you see, if we don't preach and pray as if vocation matters to God or the world, then we're just not going to get this done, really. We won't be the salt and light of God's work in the world, really, because people will be continue to be stunted, continue to live out of compartmentalized accounts of their faith and with dualistic versions of sacred and secular, which don't really give coherence and seamlessness to life. They won't be able to see, in fact, that the work of you know, building a highway or driving a semi or being a lawyer or being a nurse or being a kindergarten teacher, ah, that has anything to do with the work of God in the world. Um, if we don't preach and pray as if that's true, how are people going to understand that, Daryl? That's uh, a great observation, and it, 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 it's a real challenge, I think, for churches to think through how how they do and what they do, and hopefully in hearing uh, an exhortation like you've just given that they'll give thought to how vocation and life and faith in, integrate in such a way that it that it cultivates a healthy a healthy life and a healthy culture both for their parishioners and for the people around them so the city can flourish. We really thank you for being uh, with us today, Stephen, and for your words on on vocation, and we thank you for being a part of the table. And we look forward to having you back with us again. Thank you, Daryl. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits Podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.